Hello and welcome to One Great History. Uh, I'm Alex and this is Sabrina. Hi! And we've got our producer Nick here as well. Hello. And by here I mean virtually here because that is still how we're <laughs> recording unfortunately. Uh, we are two occasionally employed historians who like to talk about the great and not so great history of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Um, and today we're doing a pretty fun topic. We're talking about prohibition. Woohoo! So <laughs> I say woohoo because Alex has messaged me a few times about how it's not as sexy as we might think it is. <laughs> yeah, this whole time I've, I've been, been like, prohibition was like not fun, and maybe the prohibitionists were the good guys. Is what I've been texting you for weeks. Basically. Yeah. So I'm very <laughs> curious to see how you take this episode. Uh, but also, just to get us started on the topic of um, drinking, um, Sabrina, I've mainly known you to drink one kind of cocktail. <laughs> So when you said you were going to do Prohibition as an episode, I knew you were going to ask me about this, and I have been dreading this for weeks. Do you want to share with our audience what your go-to cocktail is? Oh, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> it's a dirty hooker. <laughs> it just tastes like juice. Someone once made fun of me. I was like 20, and they were like, this is a drink 18-year-olds drink. So out of spite, you've been drinking it since? <laughs> uh, no, I just like it, and I don't like the taste of booze. Yeah, fair enough. No, that's legitimately one of my favorite things about you, is when you go to, like, <laughs> a sports pub, and you're like, make me a dirty hooker, please. <laughs> yeah, it turns out when you go to the fancier bars, they don't know how to make them. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll also do a rum and coke. Yeah. Yeah, rum and coke is my go-to drink. I think when I was around 20 or so, someone told me, like, when you go to a pub, get a rum and coke. It's always going to taste fine and no one will make fun of you. I mostly went to socials when I was, like, around the, like, when I turned 18. So you can't really get a lot of fancy options. It's beer, vodka, or rum. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, do you have, like, a go-to drink? Um, I went sober about 13 years ago. Actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but my go-to, I remember like when I started drinking, like, cause you'd drink with the boys or whatever yeah. in the basements, but like I was the first to turn 18 in my, in my friend group and I didn't know like any drinks. So I was just <laughs> like, uh, screwdriver, that sounds cool. And like, that was the first <laughs> drink I ordered in a, in a restaurant or a bar or whatever. Um, but I used to always, cause my dad used to always order two fingers of scotch but two fingers of scotch you know so I, i'd always say it as a joke and people would laugh but like one time they brought me two fingers of scotch like that and they were like now drink it and i was like oh boy uh, oh no so, <laughs> so for listeners because that's a that's a visual joke there yes yeah, two, <laughs> two fingers together and then two fingers on the opposite side of the hand so a much larger amount of scotch yeah and I want to say it was at Perkins where they actually indulged me on it. <laughs> and I was definitely coming from a bar. Like you'd, you'd go to the bar and you'd then go to Perkins after and yep. then like eat your weight in pierogies and appetizers <laughs> and things like that. But yeah. What's, what's your go-to Alex? Uh, yeah. Usually if I'm out, I'll drink a rum and Coke. I also like a gin and tonic. Like the truth is though, that I want the fancy drinks. I want the like, the frou-frou mixed drinks that cost $13. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Conceptually, yeah. I like them, but also I don't drink that often. So every time I have them, I can still taste the vodka in it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is gross. What I actually want is some watered-down sourpuss. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, we went to a fourth bar one one year for my birthday, and they'll do like a custom cocktail for you, which is really fun. You like? Yeah, I really like going there want. too. Yeah, and and mix it up for you, which is cool. But uh, yeah, so maybe I'll I'll start um, the episode then by saying that drinking did not involve a lot of frou frou cocktails a hundred <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I would not have done well. No. <laughs> No, and maybe actually I'll ask Sabrina, like, what would you say your mental image of Prohibition is? I mean, I know what Prohibition in Manitoba was like, partially because you keep telling me it's not <laughs> what I think it is, but also because I have researched it before. But I think broadly what it is is more like the, like, Al Capone speakeasies in New York type of thing. Yeah, so I think we, we do tend to think of it as being pretty, like, almost like fun and exciting, right? Because you're like, when you're drinking, it's kind of daring. And so there's like speakeasies and flappers. And so I'm here to tell you that it's none of that. (laughs) (laughs) Boardwalk Empire lied to me? (laughs) I mean, to be fair, in the States, those things did happen. But Prohibition in Manitoba was a little different. One of the big myths is that it was um, foisted upon us. And so I'm going to talk a lot about how that is not at all true in Manitoba. Um, and how speakeasies and bootlegging weren't really kind of central here. Um, but just to start, um, humans discovered a long time ago, a long, long time ago, that if you leave certain things sitting around long enough, that they'll ferment and they make you feel funny when you eat or drink them. <laughs> um, and from there, it didn't take much longer, I think, to realize that, hey, it might be a good idea to make some rules about how we use this thing, right? Um, so prohibition is unique in that in theory, it means that no one is supposed to have liquor at all, but really we've historically had a ton of different rules about who can drink, when, where, and how much. So some of those are just social rules, right? Some of those are laws. Um, and realistically prohibition never completely prohibited. In just about every case, it was just like a ramping up of those rules, or in some cases, turning some of those social rules into actual laws, right? Like the Mm -hmm. social rule that you shouldn't be drunk out on the street, we can make that into an actual law that you shouldn't be doing that. Um, But yeah, the issue is basically that keeping people from consuming a thing that makes them feel funny and good and better at dancing is really hard, (laughs) as it turns out. Um, So in Canada, liquor control began with the Hudson's Bay Company, which controlled the sale of liquor at its outposts, which kind of makes sense, right? They wanted their trappers and traders not to be fully drunk all the time. I can't imagine it would be safe to be fully drunk all the time. Also. (laughs) (laughs) No, and probably you'd, if you're like a clerk at an HBC trading post, you're probably not doing good math if you're drinking all the time. (laughs) No. Yeah, and then Canada itself begins regulating uh, liquor in the 1870s um, with the Canada Temperance Act, which gave provinces the ability to pass prohibition and to regulate liquor overall. So this is basically the federal government saying, okay, we get that this is a thing there should be rules about and basically passing the buck, right? Saying (laughs) provinces, this is a thing that you can figure out, please. We don't want to deal with this. We don't want to deal with it. So this is actually when the first Provincial Liquor Commission is established. This is when the MLCC comes about, essentially. Okay. Um, Yeah, and this is actually when we start regulating liquor in a way that I think would be pretty familiar to us today in a lot of ways. Um, 
Okay, so let's talk about just like Winnipeg in general in the late 1800s and <laughs> yeah. early 1900s. So, Probably a good call. Yeah. <laughs> so Winnipeg grows ridiculously fast, um, as we know. So just to give some idea of that, in the 1860s, we had five hotels. By 1881, we had 64. And Whoa. a year later, yeah. in 1882, we had 86. So we had a huge boom in the 1880s, um, and between 1880 and 1882, a foot of land facing Main Street went from a value of $100 to $2,500. Wow. Um, so Winnipeg has become um, a frontier town, essentially, and people are coming looking for work, and it's like... It's not quite like a place like New York or Chicago where people are coming like, oh, the streets are paved with gold. I'm going to make a fortune. But it's a place where I feel like, oh, I can go there and eke out a living. Mm -hmm. um, and when I see people, I primarily mean like young single men at this point, right? Yeah. So that's like in the kind of early days of Winnipeg. Um, that's a lot of who was here, right? And a lot of also like young single men who weren't necessarily here permanently, who didn't necessarily have a stake in what Winnipeg was. Um, and so a lot of those hotels that we talked about were basically just saloons. Um, yeah. They were pretty, they were pretty rough. The floors apparently were like literally covered in mud. <laughs> like, <laughs> just Classy. like, yeah. Have you heard the story about a bear breaking into a bunch of bars on Main no. Street? <laughs> no. Tell me. Um, this would have been in either the late 1860s or early 1870s. And essentially, a bear had been tied up outside of a hotel for, like, entertainment purposes, I guess. It was going to be doing some sort of, like, onstage act, but the bear broke loose and then oh. wandered into the uh, Red River Saloon, which would have been, I think, around Portage and Maine. And then walked in, scared everyone out. <laughs> the uh, book that reported on it called The Baron Advocate for Temperance. <laughs> but then he soon fell victim to vice because he also had some of the beer. <laughs> so beer so good, even a bear likes it. Yeah. <laughs> and I would, I would venture to say that these saloons were suitable only for bears. <laughs> Truth yeah, I think, that's, <laughs> I think you're probably right. Um. People were also, like, they call them hotels, but it sounds like mainly it was just, like, a saloon where if you passed out on the floor, that was fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems gross. Like, people were welcome just to sleep where they dropped. All right. Um, saloons also didn't have chairs. Um, right, yeah. Some of the fancier ones had a rail on the bar that you could put your foot on. But, like, essentially, it's just a place to get absolutely as drunk as you possibly can because <laughs> nothing else going on, right? Yeah. Um, and it was basically fine to be drunk as long as you weren't violent. Um, it was also fairly cheap. Um, you could buy, so, a 750-mil bottle of whiskey or rum for about a dollar at a grocery store. So it was pretty easy to find mm -hmm. liquor. Um, which you could then enjoy right there at the store, actually. So another, yeah, so people would drink in liquor stores, like that was kind of like a social hangout. So you could sit on a box or a barrel. So hey, you've got a place to sit. It's already better than the saloon. <laughs> uh, I can yeah, imagine going into a liquor store today and just like cracking open like a Mike's Hard Lemonade in the aisle. <laughs> and just chatting with a security guard and seeing where that would take you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think that would be welcome anymore. 
I mean, you'd also now have to bring your own liquor into the grocery store, which is significantly weirder. Yeah. Um, yeah, so as that boom kind of comes to a close, there are more permanent families coming in as well. Um, and as Winnipeg becomes more of like a city, a permanent settlement, and families start to move in, obviously Winnipeg being this like rough and rowdy and drunk becomes a problem. Um, and what it a starts shocking being, twist. I know, in a shocking <laughs> twist, it's not great to be in a gross saloon all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it starts to be something that like merchants and religious figures and women and so on are all kind of trying to address, right? Because people are starting to think like, okay, Winnipeg is going to be something, right? Which is something that people thought back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so in order for it to be something good, we need to kind of control the vice. Um, Manitoba also becomes pretty religious, so it's kind of this contradiction here where it's like, you know, people call it like the wickedest place in the West and all this, but it's actually like the immigrants who are coming in are, are quite religious. Um, and so, for example, religious figures here pushed hard for Sunday closures, and that's something that's eased up only very recently. I'd say in Manitoba we have some of the like firmest kind of Sunday uh, rules until recently. Well, they just loosened them, like, what, within the past six months? Yeah. So you can now yeah, stay open of, later than six? Yeah, because of COVID, and even, like, probably when you and I were, were kids, um, things weren't open on Sundays at all, generally. I mean, I grew up in a smaller town, also. Things yeah. are still closed <laughs> here on Sundays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a lot of things still are. Um, and actually, religious leaders were pushing bars to close earlier on Saturdays, because people kept coming into into church drunk on Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the issue is that you can push back against that stuff, but there's not a lot else to do. Um, Winnipeg doesn't really have like recreation centers or anything yet. Um, and actually some um, temperance advocates begin suggesting that either like the government or the church or someone should begin building recreation centers so that there's something to do other than go to the saloon. Well, I'm just thinking of also like the sports you would have done at the time and a lot of them still involved drinking. That's true. Yeah. Like if, like you're... if you're gonna, if you're curling, you're probably going to be drinking on the ice. If you're golfing, you can take your drink with you, presumably. I don't know if that would have been the yeah. case. That's then. true. A lot of those older, a lot of those older sports are are kind of drinking heavy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So we do introduce some regulations at this point. Um, like I said, there's the creation of this licensing commission. Um, so only hotels could have saloons. So bars actually had to be attached to hotels at this point, and that hotel had to have um, at least ten rooms. So. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't just be like, sure, this is a hotel. <laughs> the stock room has a bed in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the hours were meant to be 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. What's funny to me about that is, like, you can go and drink really early, but not really late, which, <laughs> but... It seems worse for many reasons, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing was that there wasn't meant to be more than one hotel license given for every 300 people. So that kind of would, would limit the number of saloons that there would be. Um, but that didn't do much. Like, that's, that's really all it was at this point. And it wasn't even that much, wasn't strictly enforced. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the 
case against drinking. So like I said before, one of the big myths about prohibition is that it was like foisted upon people by a bunch of busybodies. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think often we think of like middle class white women as these busybodies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of like every period show about prohibition. There's always some like annoying woman who's like drinking is bad and she's treated as a weird shrew. Yeah. And for like having those opinions. And like I think the appearance of that like that stereotype is isn't totally wrong because like a lot of temperance advocates were middle class white women but i don't think she was necessarily a shrew is going to be my argument okay <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that i find really interesting is that no one ever seems to think that they might have been in favor of prohibition right and in oral histories even very few people will say that they were right? People will be like, oh yeah, you know, they brought in this thing and like I knew bootleggers and whatever. I don't think anyone wants to be on like the not cool side of history, right? (laughs) (laughs) The square side of history. Exactly. But um, social reform overall became a big thing at the turn of the century. So there was a drive for hospitals, workers' rights, um, compulsory schools, no more child labor. That's a good one. Uh, protection of women and children, um, the right to vote for some women, and so on. So you may notice that most of that list is things that we are in favor of. Yeah, I don't think anyone's actively campaigning for child labor laws to come back. No. <laughs> or like against compulsory schooling. <laughs> and so temperance was really kind of one among that list of things that people were working towards. Um, yeah, and most of those are things that we're in favor of. Um, the other thing is that workers were spending money that they could not spare. So people would literally cash their paycheck at the bar. Mm. So, yeah, so banks were only open 10 to three grocery stores closed early. And so bars always had cash on hand and they were open after people got off work. So at this point, people usually got paid um, just once a month. And so that once a month, there would be basically a rush to the bars after work. Everyone would go and spend like (laughs) a month's worth of income on booze, essentially. Oh, God. I mean, even if you are, you know, not going to do that badly, probably you are going to stick around and have a couple of drinks after cashing your paycheck at the end of the month, right? It's been a rough month. You've probably been broke for a couple of weeks already. Um, You know people at the bar also, so you're talking to someone. Yeah, it's all your friends from work. You've probably gone down together. Um, So that was an issue. And yeah, like I say, it was money that a lot of people couldn't spare. Wages were not great for a lot of working class folk. Um, Another big issue was that drunkenness exacerbated domestic violence. And I think that's kind of inarguable. Um, If your husband is mean, he's probably not less mean when he's drunk. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably still true. Yes. <laughs> that one hasn't changed. <laughs> no, that one has not changed. Um, what has changed, kind of, is that there was very little protection for women and children at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, if a woman escaped from an abusive husband and she happened to flee with the help of another man, the husband could actually call the police and have the man arrested and his wife returned as if she were, like, an item that this man had stolen. Like an Amazon package from the porch. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, there were essentially no laws for the protection of children. Um, there, yeah, like in the late 1800s, we're really just in most Western countries beginning to see a shift from seeing domestic violence as like a problem or even maybe a crime and not like a husband's right or even, yeah. you know, in some cases, a husband's duty. Yeah, I think there was very much an idea of like, if your husband was hitting you because you had done something wrong, which is obviously not true, but. Yeah, absolutely. So I was prevailing idea to... in relationships, at least. Yeah. So I was trying to figure out what exactly the laws were at this point. So I went through the criminal code in 1892 and there's really nothing about like domestic abuse between like a husband and a wife that I could find. Um, it says that a parent can beat their child provided it's not excessive. <laughs> um, it also, this is really sucky, it, um, explicitly kind of excludes marital rape as a category of rape. Oh, gross. Ooh. Yeah, so it says rape is the act of having carnal knowledge of a woman who is not his wife without her consent. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, so not great. Um, Times so, are bad for women, huh? Yeah, yeah, not a great time for women. Protections sometimes took the form of, like, mob violence for repeat offenders, which obviously is not the ideal way to deal with almost anything. <laughs> nope. Also not super effective. Um, and even when, like, abuse did rise to the level of criminal abuse, punishment didn't seem to be that effective either, according to the records. So in Winnipeg, one man was brought to court 47 times over the course oh of God. 15 years for drunkenness and domestic abuse. So, I, yeah. <laughs> you think somewhere around, like, the second or third time you'd reevaluate. <laughs> you would you would hope i guess like what we're looking at here is a society where like divorce is not an easy thing to do yeah right where are you going to move with your children without your husband how are you going to get a job where are the children going to go during the day while you're at this job right it's it's not a, an easy situation yeah. to be in and you know liquor doesn't necessarily create that problem but it certainly doesn't help no um so a big part of um, this campaign for prohibition was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So these are our busybodies. <laughs> um, but they did also work for a number of other causes. So things like helping on wed, wed mothers. Um, they were big in campaigning for women's suffrage, things like that. Um, and one of the most prominent temperance advocates was Nellie McClung. Oh, so, of course. Yeah. So Sabrina, what is Nellie McClung known for? Uh, she is known for helping women, some women, get the right to vote in Manitoba in 1916 by organizing a mock parliament in 1914. That was like a parody of parliamentary proceedings debating if men should vote. Yeah, so we're going to talk <laughs> more about Nellie McClung, quite a bit more about her later in this season. Um, she's definitely a problematic figure and we're, we're oh, going to get... We're, totally. We're going to get more into that for sure. She um, was a little racist, which is probably not a huge <laughs> surprise. No. Um, but her, uh, first real public speech is at a WCTU conference, and I have to say that, um, you know, like I say, we'll get into the problematic stuff in a future episode, but on, on these matters, I do find her quite convincing. Um. I mean, she was, like, a well-known good public speaker. That was yeah. a really strong skill of hers. Yeah, so let me read you here a couple of quotes from her. She says, I would not run into statistics like some temperance speakers I had heard. 
nor would I tell them how many loaves of bread a man could buy if he never drank beer. I knew vaguely why people drank. It answered something in their blood, some craving for excitement and change. I knew the lives of these country people, with their disappointments, long hours, and gray monotony. And I felt that we must give them something, rather than take something away. And then she also says, Life for both men and women could be made much more attractive with recreation grounds, games, handicrafts, orchestras, folk dances, better houses, better farms, new hopes for a new world. So I, I appreciate what she's saying there, which is I don't just want to take booze away from people. I want to make a better world in which people feel like they don't have to turn to drinking. Yeah, that, that I think makes sense even to me, like, growing up in Morris, there's two bars, there's not a lot of later recreation for kids unless you want to go to the Youth for Christ Center, which has yeah. a skate park, but like, kids just drank. I think that's often a problem in small towns, or like even in Winnipeg, that, you know, because yep. there's not a ton of recreation, especially for young people, yeah, yeah, people or turn for to- for grouchy teens who don't want to do like, <laughs> the, like, kiddier stuff. <laughs> Yeah, right? Yeah, when you're at that age, you don't want to do the, like, parent-supervised stuff, but there's, like, not or really handy anywhere crafts. else to go. <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate that she's like, okay, I, I, I'm trying to understand why people drink, right? She's not necessarily yeah. making it here, like, a moral issue, which a lot of prohibitionists do. They say, like, oh, this is a moral issue or, like, an issue of willpower that you yeah. cannot stop yourself from doing this. And so she's kind of taking a different tack here. Um, she also talks about how this wasn't just a matter of theory for her and her, her cohort. So she says here, we were worried then about Jenny Gills, who was one of our members. Jenny was expecting again, and her husband had celebrated the last occasion by getting roaring drunk and coming home with the avowed intention of killing Jenny and the new baby. Oh my god. Yeah, so I think when we call these people shrews and busybodies and meddlers and such, we have to remember that these are actual things that were impacting their lives, right? Um, not that women weren't drinking, but certainly the issue of, of men drinking and then harming their families is, is not made up. Well, getting liquor for women at the time would have been much harder also because they weren't allowed sure. in bars. No. <laughs> no, they were not. And so you could, yeah, you could drink at home, but it was sort of socially unacceptable. So we are really, when we're talking about prohibition here, we're talking about trying to stop men from drinking, honestly. <laughs> um, now, she also points out that while um, some argue about personal freedom, which is kind of the biggest argument against prohibition, there are many cases in which we take away people's freedoms. We say, keep off the grass, go slow, no smoking, do not feed the animals, post no bills, kindly refrain from conversation. Now, I think one thing she kind of misses there is that very few of those things apply in people's homes. <laughs> yeah. Right? Absolute so silence in your house past eight o'clock is not a thing the government can do. <laughs> <No. laughs> but essentially for Nellie McClung and other reformers, doing away with booze was about a broader kind of semi-utopian vision for the future. So liquor wasn't the only obstacle, but it was certainly a significant one. And while we can call them naive, I don't think we can, you know, necessarily give them all the hate that they have been given. Um, the other thing, the other kind of thing in my category of like good reasons to be against or um, in favor of prohibition against drinking is that bars were just gross. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we've talked about a bit about that already, but also apparently bars were often near to livery stables. Um, yeah. And James Gray in his book, uh, Booze, um, describes it as the aroma of the stables wafted barward on the evening breezes that came behind a rain. <laughs> Oh, it was mixed with the trade smells that stuck to the clothing of the workers. So things like machine oil and slaughterhouse smells. Oh, God. So even drinkers had to admit that bars were basically just disgusting. And actually, it's funny because the temperance movement starts to gain success after they coin a slogan at their 1907 conference, which is banish the bar. So oh. that slogan basically allowed for the possibility of like respectively drinking at home while rallying against these kind of like scummy places. A place that didn't smell like horse poop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's my case for why prohibitionists were not so bad. There are also though some not so good reasons that people were in favor of prohibition. It was tied to basically a bunch of other moral panics. Oh, of course. Um, so one of the big ones is a fear of immigrants and immigration. Ugh, it always comes back to that, doesn't it? It, it really does. <laughs> um, so, yeah, a lot of new immigrants were from kind of Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and, of course, you know, the stereotypes are that those are people who drink more. And so that's really um, becomes kind of a rallying cry. Um, and actually, there's an interesting bit in this James Gray book where he claims that it was pretty common among people from those places to distill your own liquor. Um, I actually looked into that, checked in with um, a, an old prof of mine, and he said that's really not true. Oh. Um, that basically, like, peasants don't have time to distill, your, to distill their own liquor. It takes a lot of time and attention. You have to be paying attention to it all day. Um, homemade... It probably also takes up space that they don't have. It does, yeah. Um, beer and cider was a little more common, because you can kind of just, you know, put something to ferment and then forget about it, but mostly people yeah. in Central and Eastern Europe, just like in the West, were drinking at, like, taverns. Yeah. Um, so here's a quote from the Moose Jaw Times. Um, <laughs> Among the Canadians, there are many who do not drink at all. Among the French, there are very few who do not drink. Among the Germans and half-breeds, there are absolutely none at all. Ooh. Yeah. So you may have spotted by the kind of slur in there that, um, that there's another aspect to this as well, in addition to anti-immigrant prejudice, which is anti-indigenous prejudice, uh, yeah. which is tied to this. So... Um, yeah, of course, based on, you know, stereotypes around Indigenous people drinking and that, and that being a problem. So a good example of this is that actually at one point in the territories, they passed prohibition, and apparently a number of white settlers were very upset to learn that this applied not only to Aboriginal and Inuit people, but also to them, the white settlers. <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> yeah. How dare the law apply to everyone? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Um, it's also tied to issues of moral panic around sex work. So the claim there is that young men are going out and getting drunk and then basically walking over to the brothels. Oh. Which, by the way, we'll talk more about that in a future episode as well. We've got a red light district episode coming up. 
Um, and it's a class issue for sure. Uh, we're going to talk more about that when we come to the specific restrictions, but mainly they're talking about getting poor people to stop drinking. Was there that kind of idea of like there being less fancy drinks? Like I feel like if it's a person at home alone drinking like a glass of sherry before bed, that seems fancy and okay. Yeah. But if you're having a beer at the bar, it's less cool. And I think we still do that, right? That like if you're having wine at home, that's fine. But if you're having, you know, beer on the street, it's not, right? Yeah. Um, that if you're like, if you're a rich alcoholic, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's trendy. Yeah. <laughs> Get your, like, wine mom uh, socks or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, it's also a weird issue of religious intolerance. Huh. And I don't totally understand how, like, a goat gets to be in this case, but essentially <laughs> Protestant churches in general were starting to have kind of less animosity towards each other and joined under these campaigns but without allying themselves with Catholics. Uh, okay, now that makes sense to me. <laughs> I <Yeah>. understand <laughs> this. As someone from a non-Christian background, all these, these sectarian <laughs> things are always baffling to me. <laughs> um, but yeah, reformers often insulted French schools in the same breath as condemning bars, <laughs> which is just bizarre. So in a, in a thing... Um, partly about prohibition, the Methodist Church, um, or a representative of the Methodist Church said, bilingual schools were a menace to the welfare of the nation and must be discontinued. So, what okay. this has to do <laughs> with drinking, I don't know. Okay, but I actually. It has to do with anti-French and anti-Catholic sentiment. This is insane. Um, it's going to sound insane. So, growing up there in Morris, <laughs> there's a town just south of us called St. Jean. Okay. It's a perfectly normal French town, yeah. but there was an idea in Morris that St. Jean was full of a bunch of French alcoholics. <laughs> Morris, by contrast, was full of a bunch of, like, I don't know, English drug addicts, I think was the comparison. <laughs> it was a very weird feud. I don't fully understand it, but, like, that sentiment, okay. I think, maybe still exists in so maybe, world-fashioned communities. So maybe the idea is, if we teach the children French... We also teach them to drink like the French. And they'll become <laughs> Catholics also, maybe. I don't know. It's all bizarre, and none of it makes sense or are good reasons to outlaw things. <laughs> um, no, it's pretty shaky grounds. Yes. Um, there's also kind of a fear of the city. We, we talked about this a little bit in, like, the Winnipeg Beach episode. Just, like, the idea that, like, living in an urban environment is corrupting people. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely the accusation that drunkenness is mainly happening in cities. Um, and that basically Winnipeg was then corrupting farmers who would come into the city on wait on weekends and binge drink. <laughs> Which okay. I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. I'm pretty sure farmers have been drinking since the beginning of time. <laughs> now also, farmers don't have weekends off. Yeah, that's yeah. a good <laughs> I didn't think of that, but that's a good point. The farm is still there on the weekends, unless you have hired idea, help. I think the idea was, in the accusations that I read, that, like, farmers were, like, coming in to, like, run errands, and then instead of running errands, they were just getting drunk. Oh, that I could see, but it's not <laughs> like they have a lot of time off. <laughs> yeah, which probably did happen, Yeah, but I'm also pretty sure they could buy booze and then drink it at home. Yeah. So, um, we do have a 
population, uh, the majority of which, or at least a very vocal minority, um, of which had been in favor of prohibition for actually quite some time. So these arguments, they all work, essentially. Um, so when did people start first campaigning for prohibition in Manitoba? I would say as early as, like, the 1880s, 1890s. Oh, wow. Yeah, so actually, Manitobans first voted for prohibition in a referendum in 1892. Mm. Oh, wow. The weird thing is that what's happening is that the government is unwilling to pass this legislation. (laughs) Why would they be unwilling to do that? Yeah, so it's, it's super weird because there's, again, another referendum in 1899, and again, we don't do it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, the the reason is that booze was a moneymaker. Oh, okay. I mean, it, it still is. Um, but there's taxes on alcohol. There's also fines for being drunk. And because so many people in Winnipeg are living this, like, lifestyle of vice and drunkenness, <laughs> apparently the city is just making, like, a ton of money off of this. Oh, my God. Um, also, um one of your favorite historical figures, Ginger Snooks, apparently was, yeah, was apparently paid to collect drunks in his cart and bring them to the police. (laughs) 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 So Ginger Snooks is a historic garbage man who we have a whole episode planned about. And it is going to be the wildest thing. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, apparently he was paid a dollar for each person. Um, and then they, you know, the city, uh, would get whatever was left from, uh, the fines, essentially. <laughs> um, so prohibition almost comes in, in 1901, actually. So Premier Hugh John MacDonald, uh, so for those of you who don't know, his home still exists. It's called Dalnavert Museum. You can go visit it. It's a very um, lovely house. Yeah, or probably you can't go visit it right now, but if you're listening to this post-COVID, then you can. <laughs> Um, He's also the son of John A. MacDonald. Yes, yeah, so pretty prominent guy. Um, He became premier in 1898, and he drafts a Prohibition Act. This would have stopped all liquor sales, except in drugstores and through imports from other provinces. Um, And he puts out this referendum, which in 1899 uh, passes. Now, there's a couple of catches here. The first is that provinces at this time had to actually apply to the federal federal government to do this. Okay. Yeah, so that would just take some time, but it could be done. Um, The second catch, though, and more importantly, is that Hugh John, as I said, a prominent figure, he's actually called away to run in another important election that I guess they Uh. think they'll lose. So he resigns as premier to run in that other election, He's replaced by Roblin, who basically decides that another vote would have to be held for whatever reason. Um, oh, Roblin. He's a, he's a bizarre guy, but this time, <laughs> this time he wants the referendum with a two-thirds majority. Oh, wow, that's a huge majority. Yeah, so it doesn't, there's, it doesn't pass. There's also, like, some sketchy election stuff going on. Uh, <laughs> do you think Roblin said two-thirds because he knew it wouldn't work? I think so. I think he maybe just, like, didn't want to deal with that at this point. (laughs) Oh, the paperwork involved. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe he was just opposed to it, but, um, yeah, like, certainly chose the kind of, like, sketchiest way to make that not happen. (laughs) Um, now, but the people were still in favor of prohibition. This is the weirdest thing about prohibition here is Manitobans kept being like, please outlaw booze. 
please stop letting us buy it. That feels like the opposite of what every other prohibition story I've ever heard is, where it's like, all these cities are so crazy and drunk and the government has to stop it. And then we're like, will you not stop us? Please. Like, please, <laughs> please save us from ourselves. We cannot stop. <laughs> yeah, in 1909, actually, a thousand supporters of prohibition walked to the legislature to present a petition um, to the federal, or sorry, to the provincial government, which um, at the time was still under Roblin which he apparently just ignores. Yeah, okay. That tracks. Um, yeah, in the next election, though, the Liberals under T.C. Norris promise women's suffrage and prohibition. They lose, but only by a small margin, and shortly thereafter, the provincial conservatives are basically decimated by the legislative building construction scandal. Which we... <laughs> which is... Yeah. <laughs> we talked about a bit in our Myths and Legends episode, but essentially, Roblin was stealing money from the project. Yeah. Not nice. not a great look. Roblin's a weird guy. <laughs> <laughs> also very against women voting. Yeah, we don't we don't like him so much. In any case, <laughs> um in nineteen fifteen, uh the Liberals won and quickly ordered yet another referendum. <laughs> There's so many. There's this isn't the end of them. Um Yet another referendum to be held on March 13th of 1916 on whether or not to adopt the McDonald Act. So this at this point is 16 years old, this act that they're voting on. Oh my god. It's the same one that Hugh John had drafted. Have they not changed it? Is it just like the same thing from no, 16 it's, years it's ago? No, it's the same thing. Um, <laughs> so still <laughs> They're still trying. They're still trying. Um, and actually what we get is pretty similar to what's in that original act. Um, so Norris had actually campaigned too on holding another referendum, which already gives us a pretty a good idea that, you know, people are in favor of this. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course this prompts a whole new round of debate, um, around temperance. So the arguments, a lot of it, of course, is the same stuff we've already gone through. But in 1916, the world is a little bit different now. For one big reason, which is that Canada is at war. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the First World War, and um, alcohol becomes connected with Kaiserism. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and, and with the enemy, right? So it's part of this whole kind of propaganda campaign to get Canadians to be, like, you know, efficient and good and ready to fight the Germans, essentially. The propaganda campaigns they did to, like, be mean to Germans, essentially, <laughs> are so weird. There were some where we're like, Germans bayonet babies. Oh, God, yeah. So I'm not surprised <laughs> they lumped beer in with that, too. I think just anything they didn't like, they were like, I don't know, Germans do that. <laughs> Germans spit on the sidewalk. Don't you hate the Kaiser? <laughs> Um, there are a ton of speakers, so both sides kind of don't spare um, any expense bringing in prominent speakers um, on their different sides. So Clarence Darrow comes in. Um, do you know what he's famous for? I don't, actually. Okay, so Clarence Darrow was, um, I believe, the defense attorney in the Scopes Monkey Trial. So this is a famous trial. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds funny. It, it is a bit of a weird story. This is a famous trial in the U.S. about a public school teacher who went to trial for um, committing the crime of teaching evolution in schools. Oh. Right. I thought there was going to be a monkey involved, and now I'm actually kind of disappointed in the story. Well, 
<laughs> the, monkey, the monkey thing comes from the argument that like, oh, you're saying humans are monkeys, right? Yeah, but I wanted a live monkey. I wanted, like a, I wanted like a tape in court kind of thing. I'm so sorry to <laughs> You wanted him you. in the witness box, squeaking <laughs> and demanding a banana? Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah, so he was brought in by the bartender's union, actually. So he's obviously kind of like a big civil liberties guy, right? He's upholding yeah. people's right to talk about evolution in schools. And also, mm. apparently, to drink. All right. Um, so he does two lectures at the Pantages, at which he blamed crime on poverty rather than alcohol. And, like, call me crazy, okay. but I think he might have been on to something there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, he also says, I know of many ways to get poor. Um, and he kind of addresses the temperance argument here that drunkenness is causing poverty. He asks, you know, are we going to ban going to the movies, buying fancy food? etc. All these other ways that people can spend mm. their money in, you know, unwise fashions that, you know, we can't, we can't legislate good budgeting into people's lives, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the other side, this is super bizarre. Um, a lawyer by the name of Percy Hagel was brought in. This is a lawyer who was disgraced after helping a murderer named Jaff Krivchenko escape. Oh, I've and heard of Jack Krivchenko before. Yeah, so this lawyer helped him escape, and the, the way he campaigns for prohibition is by blaming his actions at the time on alcohol. <laughs> no! <laughs> he also, apparently, um, according to James Gray's book, this is a quote, was somewhat unreliable in his attendance at scheduled meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I don't know if that's who I'd want campaigning for me. No, not great. Um, I mean, the prohibitionists also have, like, a ton of religious speakers on their side. Yeah. Um, there's also a scandal in the papers when James Wharton, who's another lawyer, uh, lecturing in Winnipeg in favor of prohibition, is apparently found to be working for liquor interests in Minnesota. Oh. Yeah, so. Um, and speaking of a scandal in the papers, there's a huge kind of battle between the newspapers during prohibition. So the Tribune okay. takes a strong, dry position, which isn't too surprising. The Tribune is, is pretty conservative um, and absolutely rail on the free press for being like a little more tenuous in their position. <laughs> that is, I think, the story of the Winnipeg Tribune and the Winnipeg Free Press for most of the early 20th century. <laughs> yeah. Those two papers did not like each other. Mm -mm. Um, so on December 1915, the Tribune announces this position in an editorial. They also announced that they will no longer do liquor advertising. Oh. But actually, um, I wanted to catch them out, so I went specifically looking, and I was <laughs> able to find ads for tonic wines after this point. But it's for so, your health, Alex. I know. <laughs> it's a tonic. But is that now? <laughs> um, they then mock the free press for instituting the same rule only after the bill went into effect. <laughs> um, the Tribune argued that prohibition would be good for business and for morality, announcing that prosperity follows prohibition and predicting an increase in manufacturing wages and capital investment, as well as lower taxes. Hmm. Again, one of these things where I'm not sure how like A gets to B, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. I guess if we're just, like, all less drunk, we can just, like, do better work. I don't know. <laughs> but it seems like if you're losing money on booze tax, you would want to increase taxes in other areas. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so I should mention, by the way, that so um, the people in favor of prohibition call themselves the draws. The other side are called the wets. oh man that's so dumb it's the lamest west side story in the world (laughs) i know the dries versus the wets it's awful and so the wets argue that prohibition would be a blow to the economy um but the tribune argues that that money will simply be spent elsewhere um and that the same goes for people employed in the liquor industry that money will be spent elsewhere in shops or at the movies or whatever and then people will be able to get jobs at those which i don't know enough about economics to say if that is true or false <laughs> um the tribune also claims this is kind of funny uh for me um they claim that prohibition has vastly improved things in russia this is 1916 remember including oh no <laughs> <laughs> including Wait a minute. prosperity for peasants and a decrease in crime the peasants are better dressed and there's even been fewer fires so, <laughs> so that seems objectively untrue based on the little i actually know about russian history yeah so there's unfortunately a little thing that the tribune failed to predict um, which was the russian revolution in 1917 apparently the peasants not so happy not so well dressed, the same amount of fires. And actually, as someone with a background in Russian history, I do actually think that prohibition contributed to it. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're less drunk, you can spend more time planning to overthrow your awful, awful government. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing. It's like <laughs> prohibition is probably great for like planning like civil rights movements and stuff. <laughs> um they also run a number of articles claiming that in the u.s uh in the u.s states that have already instituted prohibition things are going great so um that's an interesting claim also yeah so prohibition doesn't really go great in the states from what i know but whatever um so on the other side uh the voice pits itself firmly against prohibition um as i say the free press is pretty kind of tenuous through all of this um, and The Voice summarizes the Temperance Act, saying it aims to um, allow uncontrolled drinking in homes where there are women and children, to close all wholesale and retail liquor stores, taking away tax money, to compel you to send your money outside the province for any liquor you may desire, to penalize the moderate drinker and leave free and unrestrained the excessive drinker, to make criminal that which at present time is quite lawful and that fines will be difficult to pay resulting in imprisonment and to increase your taxes by taking away one of the best sources of revenue. Um, I would say that's pretty fair most of that, honestly. Yep. Um, another article argues similarly that it will take away a source of employment for many. They argue that the only thing that is prohibited under this prohibition law is the sale by private individuals. Um, and they print um, this kind of big, like, full-page thing that says, Great Men Denounce Prohibition, which is a number of quotes, interestingly, mostly from reverends and other religious figures. So kind of using this, like, religious temperance argument against the prohibitionists. Mm-hmm. So says here, Christ condemned drunkenness, but never in a single instance lifted up his voice in condemnation of drinking. 
On the contrary, he commenced his public ministry by making wine in considerable quantity. <laughs> uh, and so the Tribune actually responds to this a couple of weeks later with uh, a big full page thing saying, living men uh, quotes as friends of the booze, quoted as friends of the booze, declare themselves prohibitionists. Um, and so takes a bunch of those quotes from that original one and finds contradictory quotes seeming to be in favor of prohibition uh. from the same people. So Lyman Abbott, who wrote that quote that I just said, um, they wrote to his son, I believe, who responds that he does not recognize the quote and that Reverend Abbott believes in the local option. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, they they also the Tribune also prints a big thing called "Why I Think Manitoba Should Go Dry" with quotes by notable Winnipeg clergymen, um, including their denominations, which is interesting. I guess you would kind of yeah. read that and be like, "Hey, does like does the kind of local clergy person from my denomination think that this yeah. is right?" Um, they're all Protestant. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the vote comes about uh, in March uh, 1916. There are 46 constituencies in total, 43 go dry, and only three uh, remain wet. Which three remain wet? Uh, out of curiosity. So, North Winnipeg and St. Boniface, for sure. I apparently have not written down the third one. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I think it must also have been a, a Winnipeg one, but I don't know. Um, but basically, what, what we're seeing there is like a rural-urban divide, right? That essentially yeah. the city is not so keen on prohibition. Um, the St. Boniface and North Winnipeg results, though, also might have been influenced by the anti-Catholicism of temperance advocates, right? Yeah, that would make sense, too. All the French Catholics in St. Boniface probably didn't love that. Well, there are also probably Ukrainian Catholics in the North End. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so the results are 50,484 dry versus 26,502 wet. Um, so that's, you know, quite a, quite a majority there. Um, there's we actually- really wanted someone to stop us from drinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, right? Um, and actually it could have been higher because women couldn't vote yet. Oh, right. So this is all men voting. And this also is all men all, voting. Yeah. All white women, men predominantly, right? Yeah. So, um, women would probably have voted in favor of temperance even more strongly. Um, there are accusations that the liquor interest engaged in ballot stuffing in the Tribune, but evidently this was to no effect because they lost by <laughs> a huge They did chunk. a bad job if they did. Yeah. So June 1st, 1916, the Manitoba Temperance Act comes into effect, and actually Alberta and Saskatchewan both go dry shortly thereafter as well. All right, so the So it's now officially prohibition. Yes, so this is officially the period of prohibition now, so let's talk about what that actually means, because I think it's not quite as strict as people might think. Okay. Um, so liquor could no longer be sold at bars or grocery stores. <laughs> um, okay. It also could not be kept in certain kinds of homes, so including things like a boarding house with more than three okay. rumors, a dwelling um, connected to a store and certain kinds of apartment buildings. Um, and that's interesting because that basically makes this a class issue, right? Oh, yeah, of course. So Portage La Prairie Daily points out that the act discriminates against certain Manitoba homes and accuses this of being class legislation. Huh. Yeah, Portage La Prairie Daily coming out with this, like, hard-hitting journalism <laughs> here. Um, so 
the secretary of the WCTU responded to this um, by accusing the Moderation League of being run by ex-liquor vendors and said that prohibition is an aid to temperance on the part of those who need removal of suggestion and temptation. Which isn't a great argument. To me, that kind of implies like, you know, poor people can't help themselves and we're going to stop them. Um, it's very like old style paternalist. Like we have to guide the people into moral wellness. Absolutely. Yes. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, and if you really wanted to drink, there were a ton of loopholes in this law. So <laughs> no, you can't go to the bar anymore. And no, you can't just go to the store anymore. But there's a bunch of other ways. Um, one weird thing is that Manitoba had about half a dozen breweries with federal charters, which the oh. province had no control over. So because they were, you know, federally run, essentially the province had no right to kick them out. So they were allowed to continue producing beer or whatever they were producing, but they just couldn't sell to Manitoban bars anymore, but they could continue to operate and ship their products to other provinces. And I think okay. sometimes sneakily ship a little closer to home. <laughs> um, liquor could also be prescribed by doctors and bought in drugstores. Um, Weird. Yeah. So initially, feels a lot like the weed argument. Like I'm anxious. I need marijuana. Mm. Yes, it's a hundred percent like that. Actually, there's one story from Calgary that which had very similar rules. That a group of men were going on a fishing trip and they first paid a visit to a doctor, claiming they were worried about catching a chill. And so, <laughs> so he prescribed them a quart of scotch for this. Um, so there's initially no limit, actually, to how many prescriptions can be written or how much. Usually patients were prescribed a quart uh, at most. Um, it could even be prescribed by a veterinarian, in fact. You know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes your horse needs a bottle of vodka, right? <laughs> My horse has anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and in 1919, one doctor was found to have made more than $75,000 selling prescription for liquor. <laughs> oh my god. That's, that's in 1919 dollars. I don't know what that is now, but a lot. That's an insane amount. He what was a grift that guy had going. <laughs> well, apparently he was making up basically blank prescriptions and selling them by the dozen. Yeah. And just basically stopped doing his medical practice. <laughs> So he became a bootlegger in a really, like, lame paperwork yeah. show way. <laughs> totally. Um, so actually in 1921, they closed this loophole, but it's been five years by that point. Um, <laughs> That's a really long time to catch on is. to that. Yeah, and I've... So the way they do that is that doctors are provided with a 100 liquor prescription blanks for each month, which okay. are limited to one 12-ounce bottle of whiskey or other liquor, or a 24-ounce bottle of wine, or a case of malt beverages. Okay. Um, also from 1921, vets are no longer able to prescribe liquor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it says, in a weird caveat, that they could access it for their work. What I, work would they need booze for, if not prescribing it to horses? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the actual, like... Were vets supposed was. to be drunk? I don't know. Like, I assume the liquor or, like, the alcohol they would need would be, like, ethanol. Sterilization, yeah. Yes. So maybe that's what they mean. I'm not sure. But um, another loophole was that hotels and bars could sell temperance beer. 
So okay. this is essentially um, what we call like non-alcoholic beer, but it was less than a 2% alcohol content. Okay. So you could theoretically, if you drank enough of it, get a buzz, but it would take quite a bit. <laughs> um, but the reason that was quite a loophole was because it made it possible for bars to continue to operate and sell regular beer as temperance beer. Right? Uh -huh. So it meant that bars could stay open. They could still serve people something that looked the exact same. Um, and that made it a lot easier to be secretly serving actual booze, right? And yeah. you can secretly keep whiskey under the bar. Um, breweries even sometimes paid the fines of bartenders who were convicted for selling booze, which meant that the province basically couldn't make fines big enough to stop that. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a funny thing, because I think, like, one of the, like, tropes of prohibition is speakeasies. In Winnipeg, we didn't have speakeasies because we didn't need them. Regular bars regular bars were open. They were just pretending they weren't serving actual <laughs> There's something that feels so Manitoban about putting this law into place that we cannot enforce or control, <laughs> and actually didn't want to really put into place in the first place. Yeah, like, why have we done this to ourselves? This is a problem entirely of Manitoba's own making. <laughs> we were like, we kind of want this thing, but we're not sure about it, so let's pass it in, like, a halfway way that, like, doesn't really work. <laughs> and then, oh, no, no one's listening to our vague laws. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, even so, Prohibition did hit hotels pretty hard, um, partly because bars had to keep things peaceful to avoid attracting oh. police attention if they wanted to keep serving alcohol which basically just made it less fun to go to the bar. <laughs> like, even if you could drink, like, the secret under-the-bar whiskey, you couldn't go and, like, be rowdy, right? So... Yeah. <laughs> it was, like, maybe more fun just to, like, go drink at home. Um, but more significantly, liquor could still be imported from other provinces. This is, like, the big loophole. Um, briefly, you could actually order from Kenora, but actually get your order directly from a Winnipeg brewery. <laughs> So it's a weird thing well, where you have that's to, like, roundabout. Yeah, like, you have to <laughs> mail off an order to Kenora, because technically it's outside the province, yeah. and then they make the order for you from the Winnipeg brewery, but then they just drive it straight to your house, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think eventually, like, the lo that loophole was closed, but it was still basically a measure of, like, a carload of booze driving across the Ontario border and then back, right? Yeah. Um, well, also, presumably, if you're transporting booze from other provinces, you're still passing through Manitoba. Yeah. Right? Yes. <laughs> um, and so the thing about, like, importing booze is, like, this is another thing that makes it a class issue, right? If you're yeah. a middle or upper class person with a standalone home, your drinking would probably remain pretty much unchanged, right? You can still have that yeah. glass of sherry. Yeah. You just have to send off an order form for it, which is, like, a little annoying. <laughs> and you probably weren't visiting, yeah. like, the gross dive bars to begin with, right? Yeah, it's a mild inconvenience at most. Yeah, so you could simply order, like, a nice stock of wine and whiskey from Ontario and just continue to indulge. Um, and I was really annoyed with myself. I couldn't find the exact quote again, but there's um, a prohibitionist judge at one point who openly talks about how he's got, like, a cellar full of wine and liquor. <laughs> it's just, like, open hypocrisy. Great. That's um, awesome. Oddly, you could even, it seems, for a time, order liquor from Saskatchewan, which also was under prohibition, but it was technically legal in Saskatchewan 
to import and export booze. So, oh. yeah, so Saskatchewan could import booze like, say, whiskey from Scotland and then export it to other provinces. It seems like maybe the provinces should have talked to each other it, yeah. at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Just like a quick, hey, here's our laws. What are yours? Yeah, and like, how might those interfere with each other? <laughs> Um, just a side note also that prohibition in Saskatchewan seems to have been like a lot wilder. Um, the Bronfman family over there made a fortune importing and exporting booze, both legally and illegally. Um, Interesting. At at one point, um, one of them, Harry Bronfman, apparently threatened to fist fight a customs officer over a fine for (laughs) smuggled liquor. (laughs) And Manitoba was not that wild? Manitoba was not that wild, unfortunately. I think we didn't have this kind of import-export business. Also, we just, yeah. like, didn't have this family who was doing all this crazy stuff. Um, so importing liquor also eventually um, is a loophole that's stopped, but that's largely by wartime-caused federal prohibition. So during uh-huh. the First World War, the federal government actually stops the... Um, Basically, they don't want resources being spent creating and shipping around alcohol. So, yeah, uh, there's a period of federal prohibition, but it is a temporary wartime measure. So essentially, after that's done, that's still going to be a loophole that exists. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some home distilleries, but obviously this isn't technically a loophole as these were illegal. Um, But if you were brewing beer or liquor just for your own use, it was pretty unlikely that you were going to be bothered. Um, as I said, though, a lot of people just, like, didn't have time, right? Like, yeah, (laughs) like, buying a still or putting one together is expensive. You have to keep an eye on it. Like, most people who are in kind of rural areas don't have the time for that. Um, other reasons that bootlegging wasn't a huge loophole is that bootleg liquor can legitimately be dangerous. Um, it's not a great thing to be buying. In 1922 in Saskatchewan, two people were killed by bootleg liquor. Oh, God. I mean, yeah, I guess there's no way for, like, quality control. Yeah, like, I'm sure Have either of you ever had moonshine? Yes, and it's awful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not good. Yep. Yeah, so, not great. If, If it's made poorly, it can be injurious. Um, I'm sure there are other cases of people being injured or killed by it who maybe wouldn't say that that's what happened to them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, there's a Tribune Trump, uh, Trump about this, which <laughs> is, homemade whiskey sure is risky. Bootleg stuff's a certain killer. If you wish to linger with us, stick to pop and sarsaparilla. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, bootleg liquor is also largely gross. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, if you could just as easily import the real stuff, like if you had the money for it, you'd probably just do that, right? Yeah. Uh, there's another Tribune Trump along those lines. Goes, uh, you know, remarked the chemist, that alcohol can be made of almost anything, even of old leather. That fact, rejoined Uncle Bill Bottletop, may account for the flavor of some of this so-called bootleg liquor. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably clarify the Tribune Trumps is a series of, like, one-liners the Winnipeg Tribune published on their front page from, like, 1906 until 1920. Yeah. And all of the jokes are nonsense. Yeah, there a lot of them are very <laughs> difficult to understand without context <laughs> or knowing like several different people in the politics of the time. 
<laughs> um, it's the 1906 equivalent of like vague tweeting about a political issue. <laughs> yeah. It's like they're subtweeting in the, yeah. in the paper, basically. Uh, it'll be like, Bill said this on the street, and I think that's weird. <laughs> and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. How could you, like, you could never publish that today either, right? Like, Oh, no, absolutely not. You have to be able to back it up. Yeah, and they do publish things about, like, specific people sometimes, too. Which we'll get into in our Ginger Snooks episode. There's yes. a lot going on with the Tribune Trumps and Ginger awesome. Snooks. But yeah, so it's hard to say how prevalent bootlegging really was. I feel like every person has, like, a rumor about bootlegging. Like, every oh, person yeah. is like, oh, yeah, my great uncle made, like, you know, bathtub gin or whatever. Um, and I think some of those stories are probably true, and some of them are probably just, you know, urban legends or, you know, wanting to be on the cool side of history again. <laughs> Having a cool, rebellious old, like, great uncle. Yeah. So the results of prohibition, um, as we said, there's a ton of loopholes, so I don't know how much it's even really working, but James Gray, uh, the historian, claims that crime took a steep dive. Um, now, that's totally possible, but there are also another um, uh, other possible causes that I should mention. Most importantly, the outbreak of the war, which yep. meant a ton of changes to Canadian society. Um, also, like, a lot of young men just weren't around, right? Um, Winnipeg also became less of, like, a stopover town. It became kind of more settled. Um, but James Gray also says that railway accidents uh, dropped, which I can definitely believe. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, if, le if fewer people are driving drunk, that's, that's a good thing for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, Gray also suggests that the Winnipeg general strike was nonviolent because of the lack of alcohol. Interesting. Well, that's interesting because we there's also accounts of there being violence during the general strike. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> and actually, uh, reading James Gray is interesting because, so he's, I'm not like outing him here, he's open about this, that his father was an alcoholic. So he comes out yeah. as quite like pro-prohibition in his book. Um. But in terms of the strike, I did also find an interesting letter from the People's Prohibition Association in BC to Mayor Gray, uh, who oh. was the mayor during the strike, asking him to confirm that the strike had not been caused by prohibition. Oh, um, that would be a weird thing. <laughs> yeah, so apparently, like, anti-temperance groups in Australia and New Zealand had been saying that prohibition in Canada has caused this strike. Oh. Yeah. Huh. I mean, that's not true, but that's an interesting claim to make. Yeah. So, um, another result, there was less drunkenness on the streets, which makes sense. If it used yep. to be, if it used to be legal and now it's illegal, probably you're going to be drunk at home instead. Um, <laughs> Fred Dixon said, so he's a, a labor leader, he said, um, that there were previously many drunken people on Main Street, and he says, now I can walk the streets without meeting a single drunk and naturally feel more proud of the city to which I belong and the province in which I live. <laughs> um, there are also right. fewer convictions for drunkenness, which is interesting because I would imagine that they would be enforcing that more heavily as well. Yeah. But I will say that that does not necessarily mean fewer drunk people, but it does mean fewer drunk people in public. And less records about it. Yes. Yeah, so we're just not hearing about maybe bad things that happened in people's homes, right? Yeah. 
Um, July 1st, the Tribune writes, this was Winnipeg's first public holiday without the bar. There was subsequently no parade of drunken men upon the streets and from free street disturbances. <laughs> uh, the police report the city absolutely free. If this condition is to be taken as a criterion, then prohibition in Manitoba is an unqualified success. Um, they also run, um, the same day, a obituary for John Barleycorn, by which, <laughs> no, <laughs> by which they mean liquor, <laughs> and it, it, uh, the title is John Barleycorn, One Month Dead, Forgotten. Uh, says, <laughs> no one misses him. Merchants rejoice at, rejoice at death of demon rum. Homes happier, money is, pl- is plenty. Um, Imagine there was a guy named John Barleycorn, and he yeah, saw that and was like, what? <laughs> Devastating. Said, said his rights had scarcely been performed before the Manitoba grocer um, openly expressed the belief that the deceased had always been a curse to the community. <laughs> so, as, <laughs> this is really funny because if they're writing this as an actual obituary, like, it's not very nice. No, that's devastating. He was not missed. No one liked him. He was a blight upon the community in which he lived. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they do also report a reduction in crime uh, generally. Um, and it's funny because all of these claims seem to be that, like, things are great, prohibition is going amazingly, and yet it doesn't last, right? We know that. Yeah. Um, and a really, like, sad fact is that 1917 actually sets a record in Winnipeg for women committing suicide. Oh, God. Yeah, so basically what I'm saying there is that prohibition did not fix social problems. No, I think maybe we could have guessed that from the start of this episode. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) Um, Enforcement was definitely an issue, so um, if you were caught bootlegging, um, you could get a $100 to $1,000 fine, or you could get 60 to 120 days in jail. For a second offense, you could serve up to six months. So that's that's fairly significant, I'd say. But yeah. those rules aren't vigorously enforced. Okay. Part of the issue is that they didn't really have the support of the federal government. Yeah. Um, so provincial offer- officers raided these kind of federally chartered brewers periodically. And in theory, those could be closed after three violations. But in practice, Ottawa almost never did that. So one brewery had 13 um, oh violations God. and continued to run. Um, they were supposed to be proving that strong beer was being brewed for sale um, elsewhere, essentially. And, like, that's just really hard to do, right? Like, if they can be brewing it, like, how do you know where they're shipping it? Yeah. Um, liquor spotting was also just, like, not a great job. Like, they had to hire people to actually do this, but apparently, you know, didn't pay that great. It wasn't fun, right? Because you're going around that's telling just, people not to drink. Yeah, that's just sitting around and seeing if you can catch people drinking. Yeah, it's just correct? being a narc for a living. <laughs> uh, so, apparently, the people who took it were often less than exemplary. Um, <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, so, one of the weird things is that the word of a single liquor spotter wasn't enough to convict someone. So they oh. had to work all the time in pairs. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's this odd system. So they acted in pairs. They usually acted on complaints, so they wouldn't just go, like, barging into people's houses looking. So it's kind of like if your nosy neighbor complained that you had been bootlegging, that's when you might be found out. Yeah. The other problem was that enforcing in small towns was super hard because 
as soon as they arrived, people would be like, who are these two strangers who showed up out of nowhere? <laughs> and all the local bootleggers would be warned. Um, yeah, that makes sense when two narcs come yeah. to town. <laughs> so not being spotted then meant basically that you would have to like hang around town for a while, which just like isn't worth the expense of doing that. No. And even so, a bootlegger wouldn't generally sell to a stranger. So it was difficult to find out. Um, also, like I say, not always the best people involved. Um, a one inspector from the temperance department named McPhail was brought to trial for bribery and corruption. Yeah. Um, they ended up finding itemized bookkeeping accounts from bootleggers, including... <laughs> Yeah, so they were keeping, like, itemized accounts of, like, all the bribes they had paid out, which was not great. <laughs> oh my god. The other weird thing is that illegal distilling was actually a federal offense. So, if liquor <laughs> spotters- it's, it's just ridiculous, Kate. So, if liquor spotters came across an illegal still, they had to report it to federal authorities who would arrange an RCMP raid. So, they couldn't actually even take action immediately. Which gives you time to hide the illegal yeah, stuff. Yeah, <laughs> surely in the meantime you just get rid of your bootleg liquor. Um, even so, there are some fun stories about people being caught. Um, so in 1920, um, a guy named William Chapman is arrested for being drunk in public with a bottle of bootleg whiskey in his pocket. And he says to the judge that the spirit of the Temperance Act is the spirit of the evil one. Uh, okay. He's, he's told in response that, well, the spirit of the law must be considered and not just its literal text, which is what he's kind of arguing here <laughs> in a weird way. And he apparently throws up his hands and says, I'm not here to fight spirits. It can't be done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a ghost hunter. What do you want from me? <laughs> and was charged a $200 fine. <laughs> yeah, that was not going to play out well for him. No. Um, in 1922, police and morality officers make a surprise inspection of a home on Jarvis Avenue. Initially, they find nothing, but then they realize that a windowsill is loose on one end. Um, they remove the windowsill and found a small rubber hose with a tap on the end coming out. Following the hose, they uncovered a 10-gallon reservoir built into the wall with a oh. second hose attached to replenish it. And they apparently had to break apart the wall to remove the evidence. Oh my god. That's so a lot that of work. Is, that's a lot build of work. It into your wall. Build a wall around their bootleg liquor. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're getting kind of towards the end of the period here. Um, one of the big things that kind of brings about the end is that Canada's wartime anti-alcohol measures are about to expire in 1919. Um, so the Canada Temperance Act is passed, which essentially made it illegal to ship alcohol into any province that had passed, or sorry, that had voted for prohibition. So this okay. would basically close that big importing loophole. Yeah. Um, however, it required another referendum. <laughs> oh, no. So they basically needed another one to say, okay, this is, you know, really what your people want. And the funny thing was that wartime measures would expire in November 1919, and the vote wasn't in October of 1920, which meant that there was almost a year in which booze could easily be imported again. Great. The other thing is that temperance advocates basically had to fight their battle all over again, right? Um, yeah. And at this point, Manitoba's economy is failing. Breweries 
are arguing that repealing prohibition would boost the economy. Um, another big thing is that BC had enacted some more moderate temperance laws that seemed to be working fairly well. And so I think a lot of people were looking to that. A lot of veterans coming back also seem to have opposed prohibition. I'm not, not sure why. That would probably be something worth like looking more into, but yeah. I wonder if it had something to do with just like needing alcohol after returning yeah. from a horrible war. Well, just PTSD and coping yeah. essentially, right? Yeah, that would be my guess, but I don't know. Um, it also became an issue of like province rights, which, you know, while a legitimate debate was just not super exciting and did not draw voters. <laughs> so wow. in 1920, there's a new vote. Manitoba does dr vote dry again, but not by nearly as large a margin, especially in Winnipeg, which this time all goes wet. Um, oh. And there's basically, prohibition kind of begins to fall apart after that. There's even less enforcement because it basically just feels like the public spirit isn't there. Yeah. And then three years later, there is, wait for it, another referendum. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah, so the Liberals lose office and John Bracken becomes Premier. Um, now, this is a super weird election. He was the leader of the United Farmers of Manitoba. And they actually hadn't expected to win. And so they hadn't even named a leader prior to winning. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So it sounds like he was basically being bothered by moderationists. And he was like, fine, I guess we'll <laughs> do this. Um, he wasn't, he was a professor. He wasn't a politician. I don't know that he had a ton of ideas of like what he wanted to do. Um, so again, they're having to fight. And actually, I found a 1923 book of prohibition campaign songs. Oh. Entitled, Vote No on June 22nd and Save the Boy. <laughs> <laughs> the Boy. So it includes a lot of, they're all very, like, wartime-y uh, songs, including um, Trumpet Notes for the Temperance Battlefield, The Prohibition Army, Stand Up for Temperance, and The Royal Templar's Battle Song. Wow, they which, went hard on, like, the wartime imagery for yeah. Prohibition. <laughs> Yeah, there's a line here that goes, the mother bowed with grieving for him, her darling boy. Praise Templar, stop the traffic and change our grief to joy. It's weird. Uh, but yeah, I guess you could go and sing these songs and try and vote for temperance. <laughs> How effective do you think the songs were? Because I feel like they wouldn't be. <laughs> I don't think they would be either. I don't know. It was a kind of, it's kind of a weird different take on it, especially after the war. Right? Maybe they were trying yeah. to recapture that spirit of like, oh, this is like a wartime thing we should all be fighting for. Except it's um, not wartime anymore, and also it's kind of dinky to sing anti-prohibition yeah. songs. <laughs> and so in 1923, apparently Manitobans have had enough, and we finally vote against prohibition for the first time since 1892. <laughs> when you put um, it in perspective, like, that's a lot of time Manitoba was really desperate for prohibition. Yeah! Yeah, and so what did it do? I, I'd say it kind of just changed the way people drank. Um, it was no longer in public or in gross saloons, but instead people became private drunks, which yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's better. It's you harder know? to, like, enforce or spot. Yeah, and I also think, like, if we're trying to prevent things like alcoholism, like, yes, your friends can encourage you to drink too much sometimes, but I also think sometimes your friends can tell you, hey, maybe that's enough. 
someone needs to be able to cut you off. Yeah, I think, I think like the alcoholism of someone who's like stuck at home by themselves all day can be even more insidious, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know that that was all that significant of a change, but it was a change. Um, so Prohibition ends officially in 1923, but in reality, Manitoba has continued to have pretty restrictive liquor laws, actually, compared to other places in a lot of ways. Um, mm. So even today, visitors from, like, the U.S. or even from, like, some other provinces, like Quebec, might find it weird that you can't buy a can of beer in a grocery store here. Yeah. Um, most liquor sales continue to be through province-run liquor stores. Um, and I think because of that prohibition is really kind of the wrong way of thinking about it, right? Like our liquor laws have always existed on the spectrum from like more to less restrictive. Between 1916 and 1923, they were for sure the most restrictive, mm -hmm. but realistically liquor was never entirely prohibited. And since then the laws have loosened slowly, but never entirely. And we probably wouldn't want them to, right? No. So after this period, things were still quite limited. Even after 1923, there were limits on how much alcohol you could buy at once, and it involved, like, filling out an order form with all your information. Um, serving alcohol on Sundays and mixed-gender drinking were both prohibited until the 1950s. Yeah. Dancing and drinking are allowed for the first time in the 1960s. Which is uh, wild to me. Yeah. The drinking age used to be higher. It was lowered to 18 in 1970. Uh, also in the 1970s, women are permitted to handle and sell beer in beer parlors for the first time. Wow. And, <laughs> you can't see me rolling my eyes, but. <laughs> and people are allowed to stand up while drinking. Which is funny because we've come full circle from saloons with no chairs to, <laughs> to standing while drinking again. Um, and it was actually only in 1994 that privately owned wine stores, so places like Element or DeLuca's, were allowed. Um, yep. And I'd say, if anything, in recent years, we're maybe seeing, like, a slight push toward, like, more restrictive liquor laws, right? So IDing customers is taken much more seriously now, as is drunk driving, both of which are probably good things. Um, and the Provincial Liquor Commission also promotes limited drinking and selling non-alcoholic options. Well, like, in rural Manitoba, the community of Steinbeck was dry until about a decade ago. Or a little longer now, maybe 15 years? Yeah, sometime in, sometime in like, the mid-2000s, the mid I think. Yeah. And, prior and even then, to that, it's still more taboo out there. Yeah, prior to that, a lot of towns uh, held out for a long time, remaining dry. Actually, um... Mm -hmm. A funny story, I was giving a tour once um, for people who were going up to Churchill... And one of them approached me and she said to me, I just heard a terrible rumor that the town of Churchill is dry. And just, she was horrified by the idea that she might have to make this trip without drinking. <laughs> I feel like I could enjoy Churchill completely sober and would have no complaints. No, Churchill is <laughs> lovely. If you can't, that might be time to think about talking to someone about that. <laughs> Yeah, I think taking a vacation sober shouldn't be a nightmarish concept. No. <laughs> and yeah, actually, I have no idea whether or not Churchill is dry. But yeah, so that's Prohibition in Manitoba. And uh, yeah. yeah. You were right, not as sexy as like the movies make Prohibition in the States out to be. <laughs> no, really not sexy. Some fun stuff, though. And yeah. like weird things that we did. 
I feel like there are persisting rumors, though, in Manitoba about us having, like, rum-running tunnels, which I talked about in a different episode. Yeah, and probably, like, some of the greatest evidence against that is just, like, that you didn't need them. Just, yeah, like, order, it's, order why would some, you do that? Order some rum from Kenora, and it's fine. <laughs> There's literally no reason to do it. But, so basically, every myth about prohibition that you've heard in Manitoba is wrong, and um, it's all a lot less sexy than you thought. <laughs> and also, we really wanted it, which is maybe the weirdest part. Like, we're not nearly as cool as we want to be. There was no, no like, Al Capone coming in and organizing and also, different like, hey, things. If you lived back then, you might have been one of those people. Probably. Pro- like, statistically, probably. <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah well that's that's it for this week uh next week what are you what have you got for us sabrina uh it is the ballad of ginger snooks yes Yay. excellent <laughs> this and has been years in people, the making do you want to tell people peek. where they can follow us because i always forget all the oh. tags <laughs> yeah so you can uh visit our website at onegreathistory.wordpress.com for pictures and sources for this episode you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at One Great History, and we are on Twitter at the number one Great History. All right, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.